And we're going to answer a question now. The question is, what will heaven be like? Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, what will heaven be like? Please follow with me as I read. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You can go to heaven. You don't have to go to hell. You can have forever what you don't deserve. And so can I. God wants to give you heaven. He's not a distant, remote, hypothetical, reluctant, mean-spirited, angry deity at the other end of the universe. He is your father sitting on the edge of his seat, eager to give you everything your crazy heart desires. But perfect. Your only part is to receive his grace in Jesus with the empty hands of faith. Put aside every reason why you think you can get God finally to pay attention to you. Let it go. That's why Jesus came. To open the doors of God's grace to flood upon you. It has nothing to do with your earning power. My good deeds, my good life, all that stuff. It's like monopoly money in a real economy. And it doesn't matter how much Monopoly money I pull out. The merit of Christ, the perfect life of Christ, the obedient life of Christ, he obeyed for us. He lived the life we should have lived and haven't lived. He died the atoning death we don't want to die. He did that for us in our place. All we do is let our guard down enough to stop holding back from him and receive from him 
everything we really want and we know we don't deserve all the way into heaven for crying out loud. So that's how this works. But then we're asking the question, what will heaven be like? What do we stand to gain by this? The striking thing, well, there's a lot about this passage that's striking, but the most striking thing is in verse 4. They will see his face. How many times have you and I wondered, man, like God, where are you? We're not going to be asking that question forever. They will see his face. Face to face with God. And loving every minute of it. That's heaven. Heaven will not be an upgrade on earth. The Bible says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has the heart of man imagined. That's the measure of your future in Christ. Now, that really matters right now. Just knowing, okay, that's where we're going. That's, that's mine in Jesus. That's yours in Jesus. And no power in hell, no power in all this world can take it from you. God builds inevitability into his gospel. He keeps his promises. He is faithful. So that confidence matters right now. That confidence about the future creates a livable present. Let's think about our past, our present, our future. It was long fashionable in psychotherapy to think that we could come to terms with our present, with our lives, and so forth by turning back and delving into our past, our background, how we were raised, and so forth, how our parents treated us. And so the idea was, what I am today really is, it's, it's the net result of what happened to me in years gone by. And there's some validity to that. But a determinative past, a controlling past, doesn't leave us with much to live for in the present. And it certainly is not encouraging about the future. So there was another approach in psychotherapy that that became compelling and widespread after World War II, after the horrors of World War II, this new emphasis on the present, on our freedom and our responsibility and our choices in the present. What the new emphasis said is, What I am today doesn't depend on my past. I can take control of my today by facing the present and making something of it. And obviously there's something to be said for that too, isn't there? I mean, let's let's just face our lives head on and deal with it. But sometimes, inevitably we find we aren't as decisive, we aren't as free and we aren't as courageous as we face the present as we would like to be. Um, Impasse and stuckness are real, aren't they? So what we most need today is not resolving the past or managing the present. What we most need is hope 
for the future, confidence about our future. We need more than to blame our parents' mistakes, and we need more than to stare down the grim present. We need a future worth getting excited about that eclipses both the past and the present. Hope is powerful. Oh, I remember um, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. He was in a concentration camp during World War II, and he noticed something. What made the difference between the statistics and the survivors was not physical health and strength in that terrible place. He noticed what made the difference was whether or not a prisoner had hope whether or not a prisoner had something to live for beyond the barbed wire. And he said, when a guy in that place gave up on his future, and he felt he had nothing to live for outside the concentration camp, Frankl said he would lie there in his bunk, lying in his own filth, until he died. People could yell at him, shake him, Nothing made any difference. There he lay until he died. But what if? What if, after all, outside the barbed wire of this world, what if we will be forever with the Lord? Then we can see death itself not as a dead end, but as a stepping stone, a threshold a departure to be with Christ. What if being with him will mean that I actually sincerely, freely, effortlessly stop caring about the dark moments of my past? Your past. You. What if there in heaven our happiness will be so real and solid and nuclear-powered and formidable that anxiety and regret and shame just can't get traction anymore? What if when our eyes look into the eyes of God, what if his eyes will be so filled with understanding and tenderness and delight that we will turn around and laugh our fool heads off at all of our torments in this life, if we even think about them at all? What if we will be psychologically healed and not just well-behaved? And what if heaven is not a bazillion light years away but one inch away, one heartbeat away. The psalmist said, your loving kindness is better than life. It's better than our next breath. So let's stay in this world as long as God wants us to. Okay, let's not go to heaven prematurely. That's a sin. Let's stay in this world and fight every battle the Lord wants us to fight. Let's do all the good we can. Let's leave the world better than we found it 
Let's use all our powers, all our wisdom, by his grace, for his glory, to make a positive difference in this world until we keel over and go to heaven at his time. And when we do, it will not be an end. It will be a true beginning. The Bible has a lot to say about God's purposes for the future. Jesus himself said, I will come again. And I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Everybody needs a place. He didn't say, I go to prepare a place. What he said was, I go to prepare a place for you. So the instant you walk into heaven, you're not going to look around and think, really? Well, okay. I can get used to it. Can I get Netflix up here? (laughs) The instant you walk into heaven, the place he has prepared for you, you're going to look around and you're going to say, no way. (laughs) He thought of me. He thought of my crazy heart. He understood me. And God wants you to be sure about that right now. Obviously, Christians disagree on some details about the second coming of Christ and how he'll usher us into eternity. But the big picture, everybody agrees on. Our Lord's second coming with all that follows thereafter is one of the primary emphases of the New Testament. For example, here's, let me just give you a quote from um, W.H. Griffith Thomas, Anglican theologian. He wrote this, The return of our Lord Jesus Christ is not a mere doctrine to be discussed, nor a matter for intellectual study alone. Its prominence in the New Testament shows the great importance of the truth, for it is the second coming of Christ is referred to in the New Testament over 300 times. And it may almost be said that no other doctrine is mentioned so frequently or emphasized so strongly. Baptism is mentioned 19 times in seven books of the New Testament, and in 14 out of the 21, it is not referred to. The Lord's Supper is only referred to three or four times in the New Testament, and in 20 out of 21 epistles, there is no mention of it. The Lord's coming is referred to in one verse out of every 13 in the New Testament, and in the epistles, the letters, in one verse out of ten. This proportion is surely of importance, for if frequency of mention is any criterion, there is scarcely any other truth of equal interest and value. The whole Bible has a forward tilt built into it. The Lord, through Scripture, is leading us forward, taking us somewhere. What the, what the Apostle Paul said about us is true about the Bible itself, the way, it, the, the way the Bible thinks. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal. That is the, that's how our future hope gets traction. That's how it makes a difference right now. It gets us 
moving forward with rugged determination, with joy, with courage, and we need it today, don't we? We need a future worth living for right now. The soul of America needs that. We're suffocating under the present moment and its oppressions. David French, uh, a neighbor of ours, dear friend, very wise man, has written about the impact of despair on America today. And there are many contributing factors to the impact of despair. Not, not conf- when confidence that there's something beyond the barbed wire, when that confidence collapses, and this is all we're stuck with right now, that's called despair. Despair is not, you know, my teeth chattering and I'm wringing my hands and perspiring. That's not despair. Well, it can be, but despair is just blahness. I have nothing to live for that, that's worth getting excited about beyond today. And even what little piece of happiness, what slice of the pie I have today can be taken away easily, quickly. For example, David points out, life expectancies are declining. Birth rates are declining. Suicides are increasing. Anxiety and depression are increasing. We Americans are the wealthiest, most secure, most powerful nation in history, and we are deeply sad. And David writes, when more Americans die from drug overdoses each year than fell to enemy fire in the whole Vietnam War, we know we face an extraordinary challenge. Why is this? Because it takes more than military power and money and well-stocked grocery stores to make life livable. We need a future that nothing in this world can take away from us because nothing in this world gave it to us. We need a sense of heaven in America today. The whole world needs it. So our future in Christ is a present resource for energy and courage and integrity and humor and resilience and everything we've got to have. Revelation 22, 1-5 takes us there into that future. It paints the picture of that future that is so glorious, only God can create it. This is the future God gives to the undeserving through Christ. So look at these verses again with me, will you? Then the angel showed me the river, not the drop, not the glass full, not the trickle, not the pool, not the stream, but the river. And When John writes this, he's thinking of the book of Ezekiel where the river comes out of the throne of God and the further it goes, the deeper it gets. It's like physics changes. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, no pollution, no poisons, nothing to be filtered out, flowing from the throne of God. 
He's not holding back. And of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. In other words, the middle of, the, of Main Street, this is totally accessible to everybody all the time. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. Whoa, that makes us think of the Garden of Eden. We'll talk about that more in a minute. With its 12 kinds of fruit, if you don't like the first kind, try the second. <laughs> By the time we you know, taste all 12, we'll be like, whoa, this totally works. Yielding its fruit each month, an annual season. Every, I mean, the abundance will be exploding. We have never seen what creation is capable of. A whole year for the crops to come out? The angels are thinking, you guys, you haven't seen nothing yet. Each month, it's always in season, continually fresh, no need to stockpile. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Enough healing for everybody who wants in. There will never come a moment or a threat or a barrier where, where we think, well, I've got a need, I've got an ache, I've got a regret, I've got some anguish here, and he has done his best, but something in me has defeated him. No, this is the healing for the nations. There's room enough. That's a big category. There's room there for you. No longer will there be anything accursed. That is, no disappointment. No need for do-overs. No loss. No pain. No failure. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. If you are in Christ, there's coming a moment not far away when you will never, ever sin again. And you will never, ever suffer again, ever again. You'll be worshiping him. You will never, ever again, as we've all done many times, grovel before some wretched idol of our own invention. And it never works, and we keep doing it. We will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. A noble identity. You will finally belong. And everybody you meet will belong equally with you. You will go through eternity meeting amazing new human beings. And every single person you meet will feel to you like your new best friend. And everyone will like you. <laughs> That'll work, right? And night will be no more. No locks on the doors. No fears. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's not like we'll have a good day now and then. We will reign with royal dignity, we will stand tall forever.
Jonathan Edwards, the uh, pastor and theologian, described it like this, that throne with the river flowing out from it. There, this glorious God shines forth in full glory in beams of love, and there this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yes, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed, that's us, may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts be, as it were, deluged with love. That's what heaven is like. And we won't be asking the Lord to back off. We won't be saying, I don't know if I can take this. I mean, I, this much happiness, this much healing, this much joy, this much intensity, I I'm going into meltdown. We will not say that. We will be enlarged in our capacities, and we will love every minute of it. The love of God flowing down into the deep places of your being where right now there's a lot of pain. But we won't be like this for long. We'll be in the presence of God and we will be drinking Him in. So these verses tell us that <laughs> there's a lot to heaven because it's like, okay, heaven is a throne room. We see throne there, right? Okay. Heaven will be a throne room. Secondly, heaven will be a city. That's in the verses. And heaven will be a garden with trees and the tree of life, like the Garden of Eden. And the river running down Main Street will be the river of the water of life where we will drink and wade and swim and surf and splash and have fun and float and rest and bathe and do whatever we want. It, the tree of life will be there too. Um, so heaven will be like the Garden of Eden. Guys, we're getting the Garden of Eden back, but more. Okay, God created a beautiful reality. He put us in it. We totally stabbed him in the back. We got cast out. Are we going to end up with like plan B? This was great, but, you know, it'll be okay. You know, we, we, we lost what we could have had, but, hey, better than all this stuff, you know, in history. No, no, no. He created something magnificent. We stabbed him in the back. We made everything worse Century after century, Jesus came, lived, died, rose again. He's preparing a place for us better than anything we ever had before. We're going to end up with more. Only God, a Redeemer, can do that. Only He would. It's not as though we're just going to retrieve something of the past. Recover it. There will be no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
in heaven. No forbidden tree. Only God will be there. And only we will be there. And we will experience nothing but delight. So we can think of this future Garden of Eden then as a garden city, a combination of a garden and a city and a throne room. And this garden city will be filled with God's beautiful glory and the Lamb's merciful love. And there will be no rivals there, no distractions there. There will be no tempters there. There will be no oppressors There will be no slums, no trash, no graffiti, no danger, no corruption, no traffic jams, no noise, no bad day. It's not as though there's some part of this city that you just don't want to drive through because you got some memories that are really hard to deal with from that place at that time some years ago. No, none of that stuff. The ideal city that every city in history has failed to be, heaven will be, because what we really, really want is the presence of God. So the neighborhoods in God's Garden City throne room, all the neighborhoods will be equally desirable, equally respected and honored. Everyone will be safe and respected and wise and fascinating. Everybody in this room is fascinating already. For example, next time you have friends over for dinner, why don't you do this? I, I call it fascinating facts. Go around the table, and the ground rule is, there's only one ground rule, tell us some fascinating fact about yourself that we wouldn't have known. For example... Fascinating fact about Ray. I saw the Beatles live in concert. You know, maybe you shook the hand of Ronald Reagan or something. I don't know. Everybody's fascinating. Just go around the table and then notice how the, que- the follow-up questions just come out. And the conversations, everybody's fascinating. But in heaven above... You're going to be amazing. You are not going to get a modest upgrade. You're going to have an IQ of about 10,000, for starters, and the most hilarious sense of humor, and the most perfect moral character. There will be nothing about you you need to worry about. There will be nothing about you you need to guard yourself against. There will be no impulse or sudden thought that you need to be grieved by. The... Christ-likeness will just be you. And you will finally be free. And everybody around you will be honored by your presence. They'll be better off because you're there. Because they met you. And you'll have the same experience of everybody else. All the harm we're doing here in history will not diminish heaven. Heaven will redeem the harm we're doing because God's 
specializes in creating beauty out of ugliness. It's interesting that, in a way, it's not all that surprising that a garden shows up, the tree of life, here at the end of the Bible. The Bible comes full circle, tree of life back in Genesis chapter 2, at the very beginning. But what's really striking is that where God is taking us is not just a garden with a tree of life, it's also a city, it says here. Because when we go back, we ask the question, okay, we know where the tree of life came from, the Garden of Eden. Where did a city come from? From Genesis chapter 4. Cain invented this sociological reality we call a city. Why did Cain invent the city? As a buffer, as a way of coping with and distancing himself from God. Because in a city... You can live with this feeling like you really don't need God. You have all these support structures around you that are man-made. A city is more than a collection of buildings. A city is a reality we invented so that we don't have to depend on God. Not anymore. And we can define ourselves and be autonomous and do our own thing. And we don't need to face him anymore because we've got this mechanism. And God takes that instrument of human arrogance and human rebellion and what does God do with it he turns it into heaven come on that's what a redeemer does he looks at at this darkness we created and he says I can use that thank you makes it into heaven why would we ever hold back from him Now, obviously, some aspects of these verses might be metaphorical in some sense, but heaven in actual reality will not be less than what we read here. It will be more. The Bible says what no eye has seen nor ear heard and so forth. God always over-fulfills his promises. For example, if God had said to my great-grandparents, I'm going to give you all a, a new Model T Ford, and and then... In actual reality, he ended up giving them a Ferrari. If he had promised them a new home and then he actually gave them the Taj Mahal, I mean, they wouldn't complain about metaphors. God always gives better than we expect and certainly better than we deserve. So what will heaven be like? As a city, heaven will be a community with human energy and industry and creativity and brilliance and accomplishment and no ego. We'll rejoice in one another's success. We'll be great at what we do and happy about how great everybody else is. We won't feel jealous or threatened. This city will not be ruled by any human elite that holds other people down. This city will be ruled by God and the Lamb. And the Lamb will be there because He is how we get to heaven. And He is why the face of God will be the most welcome sight we'll ever see. Jesus the Lamb was slain on the cross to suffer all the hell and all the pain we truly deserve. He suffered at the cross 
so that we can flourish in God's presence. And it doesn't matter if you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or whatever. It doesn't even matter how successful you are or how unimpressive you are. All that matters for your future is that you take Jesus as the key to your future. And no one is so sinful and so low that they can't have him. And no one is so high and mighty that they don't need him. And our happiness will not just be for ourselves alone personally, as individuals. The tree of life is for the healing of the nations. There's enough healing flowing from the heart of God for everyone. Our access to that healing is not limited by God, but only by us. All he asks is that we be willing to be healed his way through Jesus the Lamb because he is the only healing that actually exists. So if we will open our hearts to him now and say, okay, I've got a new north star for however dark my nighttime sky might be. I'm going to take Jesus from my north star. Okay, I'm going to look up, get my bearings, keep going. If we will accept him, God, with the instant you walk into the presence of God in heaven above, you'll see him there. And I don't know, maybe I'm thinking it might go down like this. He'll look at you, you'll look at him, and he'll say, Would you like a hug? And you'll say, yeah. And he'll just wrap you up in this great big bear hug. And, and he'll say, take as long as you want. I'm in no hurry. And you'll feel this healing and going down into the deepest roots of your being. And you'll begin to discover what it feels like to be human and to be free and to be alive. And maybe 10 years later, you'll say, thank you, Lord, I think I'm done. He'll say, fine. And you'll stand up and he'll say, this is the place I've prepared for you. Go for it. And you will. And we don't have to totally imagine what that might be like because when Jesus was here, his healings, you know, were not just stunts. They were previews of coming attractions. Jesus was showing us in history what we will all experience who who love him, what we will all experience in eternity. Jesus made sick people well. He made demonized people free. He made guilty people forgiven. The only ones impervious to his touch were the hyper-virtuous people who were just too good for him. Guys, let's not be those people. Can we go down low enough to be healed and forgiven? 
everyone miserable enough and tormented enough to welcome him, they started coming alive. The healings of Jesus were not supernatural events in a natural world. His healings were a natural, normal, right state of affairs in a tormented world. He was bringing us foretastes of heaven. He still does. So what then will heaven be like? Well, here's what the Bible says. As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. As we have borne the image of Adam, the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of Christ, the man of heaven. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. We're going to sing our way in. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, a new state of mind. They shall obtain gladness and joy. We're going to own it. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. They will hightail it. The wicked will be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. A standing ovation from the creation. When you show up. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Jesus said, fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then the king will say to those on his right, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Enter into the joy of your master. See, everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let me invite the band to come on up. One last thing from uh, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Right near the end, Sam wakes up after the ring, you know, has been, the ring of power has been thrown into the fires of Mount Doom. And he, gosh, barely made it through all that drama. You know the story. And uh, he wakes up in safety in the land of Ithilien. And Tolkien writes, Gandalf stood before Sam, robed in white, his beard now gleaming like pure snow in the twinkling of the leafy sunlight. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? 
But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music, the pure sound of merriment. It fell upon Sam's ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. And then, as a sweet rain passes on a spring day and the sun shines out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up. How do I feel, he cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter, the sun on the leaves, like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. <laughs> Can you think of a single reason why we would hold back from Jesus? What is there in this world so precious to us like that wretched ring of power, my precious, that's worth turning away from him, turning away from heaven to cling to that. Right now is a flag-planting moment for every one of us. Lord, we can say, Lord, I'm a mess, but I really want to be your mess now. And see how you can redeem my mess. Don't you want to say that to Christ right now? Like right now. Say it. He'll receive it. To the praise and the glory of his grace. God be with you.